0: Cavalcanti 2 canto 10 Inferno why are they there why if we come amongst the Epicureans do we come amongst these figures? I'm going to try to answer that question in this interpolated episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, in which I don't do a single passage, but I want to look back at where we've been in Canto 10. If you want to look back at the last few episodes, that would be great. If you want to see the passages for this, go out to my website, markscarbro.com or WalkingWithDante.com. And my English language translations live there, or get your own. (laughs) There are lots of great translations out there. You might want to look back because I'm going to kind of talk about all of Canto 10 here and talk about why Farinata is damned and what we can glean from this most difficult Canto. So let's start with the question of why Farinata is damned. Farinata is a Ghibelline. Isn't that probably enough to damn him? It might be in Dante's world, given the absolute bloodthirsty hatred between Ghibellines and Guelph. But as I mentioned in a previous podcast, Dante, the poet, is at the behest of the Ghibellines in exile. So it's not exactly clear that being a Ghibelline is enough to damn you. Fenninata himself is excommunicated post-death. So he's excommunicated and dug up and convicted of a heresy, the Cathar heresy. And I want to talk about the Cathar heresy a bit because this might be why he's there. The Cathar heresy comes from a Greek word. It's C-A-T-H-A-R. It comes from catharoi, which is the word for pure. And the word here is used to reflect the ascetic lifestyle of the Cathars. Basically, the Cathar heresy, which was a medieval heresy, about the 1200s along in there, the Cathar heresy, 1100, 1200s, the Cathar heresy is a dualistic heresy. That is a heresy that believes that there is a kind of distinct separation between the material and the immaterial world. And the notion is that this world is a terrible prison that the physical world the world you can see the world you can sense the world of your body is this terrible awful fallen prison and that the spiritual world is the illuminated Beautiful place. This is a heresy for several reasons. I'll talk to you about it why in a minute. But it's a heresy that has certain uh, it has certain ramifications. For example, the Cathars did not practice marriage. If this world is a terrible prison, then there is no point in getting married because there's no point in trying to prolong existence in this world. They also believe that procreation was a sin. If this world again is a terrible prison, you don't want to bring other people into it. Doing so would in fact be a sin on your part. This also leads, this dualism also leads them out to all kinds of problems. For example, they denied the incarnation, that is, the notion that Jesus is the divinity-made flesh or that Jesus was the Godhead taking on human form. Well, he can't, If the, again, if this world is completely corrupt, then Jesus can't take on the flesh. It also, that means, and this is the big one for the Middle Ages, it denies the presence of, of Jesus in the host during the Mass. If you know anything about Roman Catholic theology, the notion is that the host actually through the act of transubstantiation becomes the body of Christ. It's not just a representation of it, but actually the body of Christ is there, present. In the host. Well, again, if flesh and this world and this material world are all bad, then there can't be any bits of Jesus's flesh in the host. That would be more bad on top of bad. And of course, they denied the resurrection of the body, which may tie into this bit here. Because if you remember early on in the canto, Virgil describes the Epicureans as those who deny the immortality of the soul and so therefore deny the resurrection of the body. And there's this whole bit about Farinata looking like a resurrected form out of a tomb. Maybe. I should also let you know that the Cathars were a notorious slur in medieval thought for homosexuals. Uh, Because they were thought, since they did not practice procreation, and since they believed that procreation itself was a sin, that they then must all be homosexuals because therefore they're having sex without being able to procreate. I don't think that's running around in this passage. I don't think there's any suggestion about uh, Ferenata or Cavalcante's sexuality in this passage. I don't see it. But it, it is part of what is going on with the Cathars and why they are so heavily put down by the church. There is a whole crusade, in fact, in Languedoc from about 1209 to 1229 to put down the Cathar heresy. And to put them in place, it's a particular obsession of the new order, the Dominicans. We're going to run into the Cathar heresy more than once in Dante's comedy. It was a concern. Basically, the heresy had been put down by Dante's own day, And yet, at the same time, the kind of ripple effect or waves of it go out beyond its stopping in the mid-1200s. But is this enough? Is it enough to think that Ferranata is a Cathar and that he was condemned for the Cathar heresy by the church and that he is put there? Maybe, maybe that connects him to the Epicureans who, as Virgil again said, denies the immortality of the soul. Maybe there are certainly commentators who claim that Cavalcante de Cavalcanti and his own son, Guido Cavalcanti, the poet, were atheists. Many of these commentators are Mm -hmm. working generations after Dante and trying to justify why Cavalcante is here. Some of them even go so far as to make the claims that Farinata himself may have been an atheist. There's just no real historical evidence for that. But again, we're told that these are the tombs amongst the heretics of the Epicureans. Why... Is Farinata here? Are Cathars connected to Epicureans in any known way? And why is this all about factionalism and not necessarily about theological points of the immortality of the soul? Perhaps the point is that these lived as if life were all. This life, the life you're currently living is all there is and for dante that may be an explanation of tribalism that believing this world is the end of everything for dante i'm not arguing this for dante may be part of the root of tribalism itself i'll explain that in just a minute It's curious that our pilgrim seems caught up in the tribalism here, too. He gets in a kind of machismo match with Ferranata. He gets uh, complicit in the sin of Guido's exile, which comes up implicitly in the passage. There's something he must learn his way out of, perhaps, the pilgrim. Maybe this factionalism, this tribalism, this focus on earthly existence. Maybe now, here's why I say that. Let me back up now and explain why, if you think that this earth is all there is, that may be an explanation for tribalism. For Dante, the truth is one thing. The truth, the eternal, solid truth of everything is unitary. It is one thing. He gets this from book three of Constellation of Philosophy from Boethius, uh, but he gets it at other places too. Um, and this is this notion that truth at its core is made up of the Godhead and the Godhead is one thing. So, truth is one thing, and therefore, truth is not factional. It can't be factional because it's unitary, because it is one entity truth. It is also, for Dante, and this is the other part, the truth is self evident. It is obvious, as far as Dante is concerned, that this world is ruled by a benevolent divine figure. It is obvious that this figure would want to save humanity. All of this to Dante is completely self-evident. So to think otherwise is to become tribal because you're dividing the truth up into factions. And if you start to pull out Pieces and not believe, let's say, in the immortality of the soul, then you're inviting tribalism because you're fragmenting the unity of truth. That might lie underneath this passage and explain why Farinata is here and why he's damned. It's still complicated. It's complicated because of the poet's nuanced perspective on Farinata and because of the pilgrim's apparent changing attitudes toward Ferranata, and maybe based on the use of the formal you in the passage by Ferranata, maybe Ferranata's changing attitude toward the pilgrim who is standing outside his tomb. All of this is just complex. Okay, let's move on to a second point. Think about the difference between Ferranata and Cavalcante. Farinata is heard before he's seen, uh, the voice that just booms out of nowhere, O Tuscan, (laughs) walking through this landscape, and we hear him, and then apparently, if you just think about what's happening, remember they turn to the right, so the walls of Dis are on their right hand, the inside of the walls of Dis are on their right, the tombs must be on their left, and if this figure is rising up out of a tomb, he must be back and to the left, Of our pilgrim, our pilgrim has to then turn to see this figure rising up out of the tomb. So Fanonata is heard before he's seen. Cavalcante, who comes up in the tomb with Fanonata, is seen before he's heard. His head pops up over the edge of the tomb, and then he says something. That's the first distinction between them. The second, Fanonata is erect, Greco-Roman, and deliberate. Cavalcante is kneeling. He does jump upright when he thinks that his son is dead, but he's first kneeling. Everything that Cavalcante says is reactive. It's reacting to what the pilgrim says. It's reacting to what he's heard. It's it's this constant overreaction as opposed to Farinata's very deliberate, almost stoic presence. Farinata speaks ceremoniously. He speaks in an extraordinarily flowery Florentine. He speaks Around what he's saying, rather than at it. Whereas Cavalcante speaks in a much looser style, and he speaks in a much more conversational style, much more haltingly. It's more the way people think. Fenanata seems his speeches seem to have been written ahead of time. They're so formal and so ceremonious. Farinata also inquires of Dante's family as to know who were your ancestors, but Cavalcante seems to know Dante from the get-go and thus says, why is my Guido not with you? Cavalcante also seems to make a mistake. Cavalcante seems to think that Dante's journey is undertaken because Dante is so smart. Your high genius leads you. Whereas Dante has to correct him and say, no, I'm not on this journey because of my high genius. I'm being led by Virgil. There's all kinds of contrast between Farinata and Cavalcante in the passage. It's important to see them because it's important to see how the passage is structured. And that's my third point. This passage, the entire canto ten, is set up as a chiasmus. We've we've talked about this before, but let me remind you: a chiasmus is a reference to the Greek letter chi or an X, and. I always have to say this. When I taught when I taught back in university days, back when I was a university professor, and I taught something, about. I remember this so well. It had nothing, we were not on Dante. We were actually on an Emily Dickens poem, and I was talking about the Chiasmus structure, and I drew it on the board. And I can remember this student. I can see him sitting there saying, well, that's not an X, that's a V. Yes, exactly. It, it's named for the Greek letter Chi, but... Don't think about an X. Think about a V. Think about a V that goes down one side and then up another, a capital V. So this is the way the passage works. Dante, if you remember, is withholding something from Virgil. Virgil says, you're going to know what you want to know, and you're also going to know what you're withholding from me. And inside of that, interestingly, Virgil makes a reference to the last judgment, to the, the valley of Jehoshaphat and the, the the last stand of evil against good. So interestingly, the passage opens with Dante withholding something and with a reference to the last judgment. Okay, So that's the very top of one side of the V. Now we're coming down the V and Farinata arises and Dante and Farinata have a little of a machismo match with each other. They get into a little bit of a squabble. And then Cavalcante arises and puts his head up over the tomb. Cavalcante is the bottom of our V. He is the fulcrum on which the passage is built. It may seem like Ferenata is the most important person in this canto, but just from the chiasmus structure, he's not. Cavalcante is the bottom of the V because coming up the other side of the V, we have Farinata again and our pilgrims speaking. But now, instead of a squabble, they seem to be on an even playing field. They both love Florence. They're both in exile. They're both wondering about the future. Well, Ferranata explains how the future happens, or how they see the future. And Dante is in a metaphysical quandary that Ferranata can actually answer. Something that Ferranata uh, can actually give back to the pilgrim. You notice that Ferranata's question to Dante is, "Who were your ancestors?" Dante's question to Ferranata is, "How do you see the future?" Look at those two different sides of the questioning on either side of the V. And then we come up to the uh, to the to the far side of the V at the top. Um, this is for the next episode of the podcast. We haven't got here in the passage yet, we get to a moment in which Dante tells Virgil everything and holds nothing back. Remember, it started with withholding something from Virgil and something about the last judgment. It ends with Dante telling Virgil everything and Virgil speaking not about the last judgment, as we'll see in the next episode, but about Beatrice or perhaps about Beatrice. So follow this V. Here we go down. Dante withholds from Virgil. Ferranata arises. Cavalcante arises. There's the bottom of our V. Coming back up, Ferranata and Dante talk again. Dante and Virgil talk again. This time, Dante telling Virgil everything and holding nothing back. That great chiasmus, that structure of a V, that showing us that Cavalcante is at the fulcrum point. Cavalcante, not Ferranata. There is something about Cavalcante that holds the key to this passage. Is it that It is a scene of misinterpretation. The Cavalcante doesn't get the tense of that verb right, ebe, and he misinterprets it. And so the whole passage turns on questions of interpretation and misinterpretation. Notice also that Cavalcante is quick. He jumps to conclusions before he knows everything. Uh, He jumps to conclusions about his son Guido. Is that Part of the fulcrum of this passage that that Dante is withholding. Ferranata and Dante are deliberate. Cavalcanti is quick to judgment. Ferranata and Dante are again deliberate. And then Dante tells Virgil everything. Is that it? Is it a whole question about jumping to conclusion? The the pilgrim seems he seems to have learned something from Cavalcante because we when we come back out on the other side, his relationship with Ferranata is changed in some fundamental way. And most importantly, watch this. The pilgrim has learned something without Virgil. Virgil has been standing over there some ways off the entire time. So Virgil is not part of what the pilgrim learns in this passage. And that's intriguing because, as I've told you a thousand times, we've passed beyond the walls of Dis, We've passed out of a Virgilian landscape. And for the first time, Virgil truly is just off to the side. He's over there. And the pilgrim is learning something on his own. That also seems very important to this passage. And it seems like, based on the structure, the chiasmus structure of the passage, the pilgrim is learning it from cavalcante so while we all may me too me me most of all may focus on ferranata i think it's cavalcante that is the center I think it's that weird dialogue in which Cavalcante wants to know, where is my son? That human bit, where is my son? Why is he with you, not with you? My son, the great poet, Guido, why he should be here. You two were the great poets of the new style. Well, two of several, but perhaps two of the greatest poets of the new style. Why is he not here with you? And are you doing this under your own steam? And then all of a sudden jumping to the conclusion about the verb and falling back into the tomb there's something there. Of course, it has to do with Dante and exiling Guido. Of course, it has to do with poetic rivalry. Of course, it has to do with what kind of poem can be written. Guido's rather sardonic and bleak looks at love and the human condition versus Dante's comedy. Of course, it all is turning on that, but all of that is outside of the poem. Instead, what's sitting in the text right in front of us is that question, where is my son? And that may be the question that turns the whole passage. That factionalism, tribalism, heresy, all of the ways that humans destroy each other, and Dante would count heresy amongst that, given what happens to heretics in Dante's day, all of those things ultimately lead to the question of where is my son? They destroy people and they destroy people's families, and they destroy familial relationships. And maybe, where is my son, is the very turn of the entire canto itself. Okay, fourth point. It's impossible not to talk about Ferenata and Chaco. Go back to Canto 6. In fact, if you want to, go back to episodes 31 and 32 of this very podcast where we encounter Chaco amongst the gluttons and Chaco's prophecies of the future. Chaco tells the near events, that is the white and black gulf struggle. In that, Dante basically says the Ubisunt, and he says, where are certain people, he asks Chaco. And the first person in Dante's list of where are certain people is Farinata. And now we've met him. Here he is. And when we come out of that bit with Chaco telling the near events of the future, the Black and White elves, Virgil, at the end of that passage, tells the far future. Dante asks a question, remember, about whether the pain of the Dan will increase After the last judgment and Virgil says, go back to Aristotle. You know that anything that approaches its perfection feels everything more fully, more directly. So, of course, there'll be more pain after the last judgment. So, Virgil goes out to the last judgment. In this passage, it is Farinata who goes out to the last judgment when the doors of the future are shut. And here, Farinata tells the next bit of the story. Okay, Giacco tells about white and black gulf struggle but Ferranata's mention of the future is much more personal. This is the first mention of Dante's exile in the poem. And this mention of exile, that you will feel the pain, it's an art you will learn <laughs> or not learn within just, what is it, 50 moons. You're going to learn this art of exile itself. This also seems part of the change in the pilgrim. Is exile and the threat of exile and the truth of exile actually part of what changes our pilgrim on the other side of that V, or X, in the chiasmus structure toward Ferenata? Because it is Ferenata who drops it first in the poem, not Chaco. This is the second Florentine prophecy, and it is distinctly personal. You are going into exile, not So-and-so will do such-and-such, and and Florence will be so-and-so, and and led by so-and-so, and and not so much. It's personal, directed, straight at the pilgrim. You're going into exile. Surely that is part of the grand shift that goes on here. And bringing up your going into exile, as Ferranata does, comes after Cavalcante. So Cavalcante arises— the father of the poet that Dante himself has exiled, Ferenata arises and says, you too are going into exile. So Dante realizes the complicity of his own piece of factionalism and then finds out it's going to backfire on him from Ferenata. Remember I told you, early on, that they turn right and they go down a secret path. And this is a reference to the Aeneid when Aeneas turns right with the command Sybil, and this is what leads them to Dido. And Aeneas sees Dido suffering in the underworld, and Aeneas realizes what he's done. He has essentially been complicit in Dido's death, in her suicide. So here, the pilgrim in some way has realized something. Where is my son? has realized something about his own actions on the, as it were, city council of Florence. And although it is not directly stated, it's actually better stated in the Aeneid. Aeneas realizes it and Virgil lets us see the effect on Aeneas in the Aeneid. Here, there seems to be a bit of cagey misdirection. Well, I was really talking about the future. Well, I was really trying to figure out how the damn know the future. Well, I was really in error, and that's why I I, I, I flubbed the tense in front of Cavalcante. There seems all kinds of misdirection here and moving away. You could get really smart if you wanted to, and claim that factionalism fragments the very canto itself, fragments the logic in the canto itself. And that would be a meta point that is very smarty pants, very graduate school. I'm not sure I can go quite that far with it. Maybe, Uh, why not? But uh, at the same time, I feel that it is just constantly coming close to some kind of human reaction and then pulling away, which brings me to my fifth and last point of this interpolated episode about Canto 10. It seems that this is a further study in the shame-vendetta cycles. I've brought this up before and it's going to play out again and again and again, but the cycle of shame Which leads to vendetta, which leads to shame, which leads to more vendettas, which leads to more shame. That unbelievable and obdurate cycle of violence is part of what Dante the Pilgrim has to learn to let go of. The poet... May have thought that the poet could actually heal this cycle of shame and vendetta. That may have been part of the original impulse of the poem. If you go back to the she wolf and look at that she wolf back in the back, way back in the first canto, in which the beasts obstruct the pilgrim and the she wolf is eventually driven out of Italy by the greyhound. There may be a way in which somehow the cycles of shame and vendetta and violence, uh, there's a hope that this, this poem will be part of the healing of that. We may now be seeing a new focus, not on healing the shame-vendetta cycles, which seem absolutely petrified in place, but instead a new focus for the poem on humanity, on how to lose it, and hear how to recover it. For it is our pilgrim, who despite his misdirections, despite his quibbles about the future, despite his attempt to excuse himself, surely sees something about his own behavior, and comes out onto the other side of the chiasmus as more human, dealing with Ferranata not as a pissing match, but as someone caught in suffering as he is and ultimately telling Virgil everything and not holding back. For Dante, and this is the big point, exile is the state of the soul. The soul is always homecoming. just want to let that sit for a second. The soul is always homecoming. Let's say you don't believe in a soul. Let me say it another way. The self is always homecoming. That is the state of selfhood for Dante. It is exile. And in fact, the soul or the self is even in exile from its best expression. It's in exile from itself. So the self exists in a state of exile from its own best self. And it is therefore coming home. Because of that, there are two choices, journeying or stasis. Those seem to be the two choices for Dante. You can either be a journeying self or you can be a static self. Or let me put it in other terms. You can be a becoming self or you can be a dead self that is not becoming anything. The problem with the damned in Inferno is that they are no longer able to become. Instead, they are ossified, petrified into themselves. But Dante, our pilgrim, is journeying. If, in fact, you choose stasis, which our pilgrim sometimes will choose moments in which he holds back, in which he seems to petrify, in which he seems to not be able to journey forward, well, then that is written all over with alienation. If you choose petrification, you are choosing to deny the coming home function of the self. And therefore, you are choosing alienation. And here's the key, and this seems written large in comedy, you are choosing anger. Because to choose stasis and thereby alienation from the true nature of the self which is becoming, choosing alienation will always lead to anger. And it does in this very passage. There is a way in which when Farinata arises, we see that he is static in his quarrels, who are your ancestors. The pilgrim responds in anger and slaps back. Cavalcante arises and asks the horrifying question, where is my son? And Dante, the pilgrim, begins journeying again, journeying to figure out the future, journeying to figure out his own fate, journeying to figure out and know the truth of his own exile and his own suffering, journeying to see Ferranata as a fellow sufferer, and soon, in the next passage, he starts walking again with Virgil. I don't think this is a mistake. I think this is exactly what the poem's doing. For Dante, the real choice of becoming is the choice of journeying, And it is the journey home. It is the journey toward where you're supposed to be. And the problem with the damned is they can't get there, no matter how hard they try. They are solidified, petrified, held in a place. I'm I'm, I'm reminded (laughs) when I was in in therapy in, in New York City for years, I had this great, shrink. I loved Joan Stein more than I can possibly say. And Joan always told me, I was early in my relationship with Bruce, and she always told me, don't become like many couples, which are like two pieces of furniture that have been in the same room a very long time. And the only way you know they're together is they have collected the same amount of dust. This is what you want to avoid. In other words, what she was saying to me is that couples can can become static. They can stop striving to become better couples. They can stop striving to deepen their relationship. They can stop, well, to use Dante's word, journeying. And so what they become is just two pieces of furniture that the way you know they're together is they have the same amount of dust, which is horrifying. She was <laughs> rarely this directive of a therapist, but it's just... Stuck in my head for years. And it strikes me that that there's a truth of that that is expressed in comedy. That anger and alienation are the results of the soul when it stops journeying. But as long as the soul is journeying, walking, coming home, it is in the process of becoming. And in the process of becoming... It finds its true nature. The nature of the soul is exile. The nature of the self is exile. And given that, then there is only one answer. Keep moving. You can try to just sit down. You won't survive in a dark wood when you just sit down, especially in the Middle Ages, when you just stop. You have to walk step by step, just as we're doing in the podcast walking with Dante. So subscribe, give this podcast a rating, drop down that Apple page, you'll see, write a review, write a review, give it a rating. I would appreciate it. Subscribe and come back because we're going to be at the top of the chiasmus or the V as my student so accurately said next time when Dante tells Virgil everything in the podcast, walking with Dante.